um, executive team that is um, diverse with gender uh, parity, but also broader diversity is going to identify and approach problems and solutions differently and in a more diverse way. And that results in more sustainable solutions. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Elizabeth Mahays, news reporter at the BMJ. This interview is part of our BMJ interview series, where we talk to people who are changing medicine. The series thus far has been a bit male dominated, reflecting the leadership in medicine at the moment, but not the actual workforce. One woman who's planning to change that is Rupa Dat, executive director of Women in Global Health a grassroots organization which is making waves with its demand for equality and representation for women in global health decision-making. In this interview, I wanted to talk to Dr. Dat about the genesis of women in global health, one of the times where social media has been helpful, and how they've managed to cement that into real commitment from the WHO. We also discuss how her experience of being both Indian and American has shaped her understanding of equality in medicine, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the way in which women are discounted. Over to you, Rupa Dat. Yeah, so uh, my name is Dr. Dot. Um, I'm the executive director and co-founder of Women in Global Health. I also am a practicing clinician in the Washington DC area and provide um, internal medicine care at the Georgetown uh, University Hospital Medical Center. Brilliant. So you founded Women in Global Health back in 2015, I think. What was it that inspired you to do that? Yeah, so in 2015, I was at a unique stage in my um, just career. I had finished my uh, formal um, education and was transitioning into clinical training. It was my first year in residency, and I had come out of almost a decade of working in global health um, as a student advocate. And what I found was that um, whether it was in the clinical hallways or in uh, global health conferences or decision-making hallways in the UN, Again, there were so many talented women, but leadership and particularly the decision-making power lied in the hands of men. And it was something that I felt very compelled to work on. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, around that time, a uh, key global health leader named Professor Alona Cakebush launched a social media campaign called hashtag WGH100. And that was in response to the fact that there were all these all male panels happening in global health. And and she was fairly fed up and said, look, here's a list of 100 women um, experts working in global health. And that was a crowdsourced list. And it was through this, um, you know, catalytic moment on social media that I actually founded um, Women in Global Health through connecting with three other co-founders through Twitter who I did not know before. But one of the things that stood out about the other co-founders is that they were also very keen to have a solution-oriented conversation. We know there is a problem with um, gender and we know there's a problem, especially um, in the gender gap in global health leadership, but wanted to really have a discussion and a really a movement that would drive um, a solution-oriented approach uh, to the issue. Brilliant. That sounds like such a big task to be taking on when you were, you know, transitioning in your work as well outside of that. What was it like to kind of set something up like this? And it's, I mean, it's grown so much already in, you know, five years. What's it been like? 
Yeah, so um, well, so I was just um, uh, sharing a little bit about the fact that I met the co-founders online and um, we were all compelled to really have a solution focused um, conversation. And so what we decided to do is go to the World Health Assembly in Geneva. Again, we were not a formal organization or resource, but we all had um, connections that we were able to leverage um, to convene at a coffee table at the World Health Assembly and bring thought leaders from all around the world together and say, this is an issue we've identified. Um, we know it's an issue that you also identify with. And we had just completed this exercise where we were counting the head of uh, country delegations, which are called chief delegates to the World Health Assembly, counting how many of them were men and women. And uh, believe it or not, that's not an exercise that was automatically being done. And so we released the data at that World Health Assembly that at that point in time, there were 23% of the chief delegates were women. And um, with that, just one simple data point, we were able to open um, the eyes to many that, you know, this is this dark leadership gap in global health, uh, at least when you take a look at the policy world. And so that's how we catalyzed women in global health, um, really just saying, you know, we're going to be a movement so that everyone has a responsibility to do something to achieve the gender um, equality vision we have. And that, you know, it's uh, something that we all can integrate in our work. And for me, that meant uh, initially having a, a campaign that was focused on building awareness and uh, putting forward solutions. But shortly after, um, even that first year, we started having so much enthusiasm everywhere we went. It really resonated with so many people, especially women, but women of all different backgrounds and ages, that many of them started forming their own communities of women in global health locally. And our very first one was in Germany, uh, where again, there is a vast leadership gap in the health space, very few women Women that have had um, become professors in Germany, even though they've been educated at equal or higher numbers in Germany. And similarly, in a country like Somalia, there was a group of women coming together for very similar reasons that uh, majority of them make up the health workforce and uh, contribute to the health sector, but were being left off the decision-making table across the board. And uh, both groups came to us and said, we formed a community and we'd like to be your chapter. And that's how Women in Global Health has now grown. In uh, 2021, we have over 24 chapters all around the world. And we doubled uh, last year during a pandemic year, especially when a lot of these gender inequalities were heightened. That's incredible. And I love that it was groups kind of forming themselves and coming to you. So it, it properly grassroots as well, where they've come together in their own communities and come to you to, to join this bigger community. It, it was really, really great, but also I think they came a lot of responsibility with it um, as we formed um, very organically ourselves as a group. And uh, I like to share that story of how we connected on social media and, and weren't a funded entity. And we were a movement first before we became a organization. So now we do have an, um, legal status and are registered as a nonprofit in the United States. Um, but it came with a lot of responsibility then to address um, the growing demand and the complexities on working on a global movement to drive gender transformative change, which uh, clearly has a lot of local context and reality. Um, and everyone that is working on these issues are 
coming to it for different reasons, but we have a shared common goal and it's been a really exciting journey. And um, I, I have to admit, I really don't know what comes next for us because it is um, constantly evolving. But what I do know is that our movement is very committed and the women in the space and the other um, allies from all different genders that are joining us are committed to working on these issues until we achieve gender equality. And currently the estimates are that it's gonna take at least a hundred years uh, to achieve gender equality. So we hope that we can accelerate that and um, and not really, you know, wait the the century that currently the World Economic Forum is estimating. So thinking back before women in global health, um, what's your background? And I guess I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, what what led you to become a doctor? Was there a particular moment in time where you thought this is it? I'm going to pursue this path. Yeah, so that's a that's a very personal question for me because it's uh, especially during these days. I'm um, Indian, and I was born in in Punjab in northern India. I grew up in the United States. I'm also American, and I call myself Indian American. And uh, I was spending summers with my grandparents in India during my childhood. And in one of the summers, when I was nine years old, I ended up getting really sick and. Uh, for those of uh, that are very medically savvy tuning in, I had appendicitis, but was septic and going into septic shock. And this was in um, the early 1990s. And India uh, clearly has fragile health systems, uh, but that point in time, really fragile health systems. And it was very difficult to access care, quality care, but I was fortunate to um, be able to um, get into a hospital that had a pediatric surgeon and ended up um, having extensive surgery, being in the hospital for a month. And even though I was only nine years old, it made such an impression on me that a few weeks later, I could just get on a plane and be in the United States and have a completely different experience. Um, even with um, the, the disparities that are in the U.S., I still could access um, quality health care. Um, and of course, it was costly, but we were able to have access to that, whereas in India, there just wasn't um, any of that. And it really didn't make sense to me, you know, how we can live in one world and have such wide disparities. Um, and I kept asking my parents, they couldn't give me answers. Um, and I kept asking <laughs> everyone, you know, throughout my career, like, why, why are we in this world? And I guess it was my calling from that point on to become a physician. Um, but not just a physician, I've always been an advocate for patients and really um, social justice around these issues. And so my training took me uh, into medicine. But while I was in medicine, I was always intrigued by the, the social drivers of change. And so I majored in uh, public affairs and uh, started engaging with policy work and I've been able to uh, work on both um, areas and bridge the two. And for me, um, being a physician is uh, not only about uh, practicing medicine, but it's also really making sure that we are achieving health and well-being for, for people in our society. And that always brings me back to the policy side. And, and why I said it's quite personal is, um, especially these days when I'm taking a look at the pandemic and I'm in a very privileged place here in the United States. I was one of the first few health workers in Washington, D.C. to get my vaccine. And um, and it's really, you know, made it much 
more easier to practice um, in a safe way patient care again. And as vaccine rollout in this country is um, increasing and we are moving well beyond our initial targets and then looking across the world um, to where I have family members and seeing what's happening there, the shortages of medical supplies um, to the extent that people are living in a state of fear um, and the lack of dignity in how people are dying and how the health system is really falling apart. It's just uh, it's just very shocking and um, and keeps me even more committed to working on these issues and reinforces why it's been my calling. Um, but it was really these early years of, in my childhood that were formative. And I just want to see a world where it doesn't matter which country you're born in or which zip code or that we all have access to good quality, uh, affordable health care. And thinking about, obviously, everything that's happening in India and uh Central and South America, and you know, I I feel like it's easy. I'm I'm in the UK, and you're in America. Both of our countries are kind of speeding along with vaccine rollout, and almost the discussion is, um, oh, as we come out of this pandemic, right? That's kind of where we're at in our thinking in in our bubble, but in so many other countries, that for for no no other reason than their circumstances that you know beyond their control, are not at that point yet. Um, yeah, I just, I wonder if you would talk about how you think the pandemic's been handled and from a global health perspective, do you think enough is being done in high income countries to support countries like India, for example, um, because this is a, a global health crisis. Um, it's not, it's not the time to be, you know, nationalistic. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I think, you know, beginning from the fact, as, as you've said, we, it is a global health crisis, and the word global um, is really rooted in so many different aspects, but the first is viruses don't discriminate um, by borders. They cross borders. It's societies that are really discriminating, and we need to acknowledge that first foremost. So the inequities we're seeing is a result of our own um, social injustice and the inequities that we've perpetuated in our societies around the world. Uh, the second is that if we really operate under the mindset that I'm safe as long as, um, you know, COVID is suppressed in my country, we're completely wrong in our approach. I mean, one thing that this um, virus has shown us is that we don't understand it. Um, and every uh, every few weeks, whether it was working in the hospital or um, listening into the WHO um, briefings on this virus, uh, our understanding of it has evolved, you know, maybe week to week or day to day, uh, but definitely month to month, we are learning more about it. And uh, the fact that there are so many mutations and what's the impact of it, and as far as our true ability to have immunity, we all should be worried about that. And the only way we're going to get ahead of this virus virus is if every society in the world, every community, every household is protected and uh, just protecting um, ourselves in uh, these uh, invisible borders that we've created, imaginary lines we've drawn in societies, we are completely um, misleading ourselves. And so, you know, I would again say that the only way we're going to get ahead is if we all come in it together and make sure that resources are being distributed. And then your question about um, 
is there enough being done? And uh, as someone who's a global health advocate, I would always say not enough is being done, but I want to ground this in the fact that um, there have been some historical moments in this pandemic that we do need to acknowledge the fact that um, a COVAX was created, the ACT Accelerator was created, um, all the different organizations and governments that came together to mobilize. Um, these are not perfect entities. They do have problems. They are not as um, efficient as we'd like them to be. Um, they are, are not as agile, and we know there are, there are some major issues with um, with these global governance entities that have been created. But the fact that they have been and how quickly they were able to bring groups um, together, the fact that there's over 170 countries that eventually joined COVAX, I mean, these are all successes that we should um, acknowledge. The fact that science allowed us to create vaccines at such fast rates and multiple vaccines and pass through the appropriate clearance in, in, in ways that were safe for everyone. I think those are also things for us to celebrate. But where the shortcomings really come is the fact that why is it that, you know, such few countries um, have been able to vaccinate majority of their population and less than 1% of sub-Saharan Africa has had access to, to vaccines. And just notice, noticing that discrepancy, more than 80% of the world's population lives in lower middle income countries. They also are being hit by the pandemic. It's not as visible at times. The numbers might not necessarily be captured, but we do know um, that they are experiencing the pandemic and yet um, less than 1% of the vaccines have really been flowing to just sub-Saharan Africa just shows us we have a lot of work ahead. Uh, and focusing on the example of India, it took a lot of um, rallying from a range of leaders here in the United States to get the U.S. government to change its position on intellectual property, to lift um, the limitations, uh, particularly on ingredients. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't have taken that. It really, we as a society um, in the United States, States, our government should have immediately shown global solidarity, as did other countries, to provide the supplies in times of need. And so I think it, it really is at the same time, I think, a global wake-up call on how do we truly see ourselves and what really connects us. And um, in Women in Global Health, we're calling for a new social contract, especially for women working in health and social care. But uh, the more and more I think about it, that our social contract needs to be uh, more broadly for everyone in society and, and no matter which country you're living in. And we obviously you are women in global health and some i think when we talk about you know diversifying voices we often talk about ethnicity and then we talk about women um but they're not two separate things you know we have you know women of color often get left behind in these conversations um and so i wanted to do do you have anything specific on that as well improving you know um diversity in that way yeah, so um, thanks for bringing up that point. And uh, in Women in Global Health, we uh, have our tagline is about challenging power and privilege for gender equity in health. And why we use that tagline is that uh, all of this comes down is to power and how power is distributed. And so power is distributed by gender. It's distributed by race in certain societies, socioeconomic, religion, caste. I mean, we really need to look at all the different identities 
identities that people have and how power is distributed in society across that. And in a field like global health, um, the power distribution is very skewed. Uh, a group that looks particularly at 200 organizations in global health and it released data in 2020 showing that less than 5% of all of these organizations in global health are led by women from lower middle income countries, even though, again, I've uh, pointed out that 80% of the world's population, more than 80% of the population is in LMICs. Um, so to see that such skewed, um, you know, data of like who's actually leading and setting the agenda. And in COVID-19, particularly, what we have seen um, when we take a look at um, the data on who's being affected by the pandemic, I am based here in the United States. Um, we know that black populations, um, people of color, indigenous, um, those of uh, Hispanic backgrounds were affected much more by the COVID-19, affected in ways of um, uh, being infected, but also having higher mortality and being in positions where they did not have um, the option to physically isolate. Um, uh, most of the workers um, in essential jobs are people of color and disproportionately. And so we've seen um, the impact of that. Focusing on health workers where women in global health does do a lot of work. Again, data looking in the United States has shown that majority of the health worker infections and deaths um, were in um, women of color um, particularly. And so that's another confounding factor. And when you take a look at decision making um, and who's actually setting the agenda too often it is um, the white male that is the authority and that did not change during the pandemic um, women in global health did a review of COVID-19 task teams around the world and looked at 87 different countries, um, 115 COVID-19 task teams, and we found that 85% of those were majority um, male-dominated task teams. And uh, a review that came out shortly um, after us um, this year, which looks at even more countries, confirmed the 85% point. And I think it's I think it's important that we go through why it's so important to have women in these spaces and women's voices being heard, not just for it being fair, it is fair that they, they are heard and they have this space, but I also understand that you've done some research on the advantages of having women in these roles, making these decisions. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so exactly as you've said, um, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. And some of the foundational work actually is uh, before Women in Global Health was founded, we were already seeing um, the private sector and other sectors in society making the case that when we have uh, women in leadership roles, what we see is that first foremost, um, there tends to be much more sustainable solutions. So any um, executive team that is um, diverse with with gender uh, parity, but also broader diversity is going to identify and approach problems and solutions differently and in a more diverse way, and that results in more sustainable solutions. So we always make the case that um, in a complex uh, world that requires uh, really diverse solutions in global health, we really need to bring uh, minds from all different backgrounds together. So that's you know one, one key area that we really uh, continue to reference 
reference the work of other sectors. The second is around um, the economic benefits of it. We know that if we close um, the gender equality gap and um, really look at it from a human capital perspective, citing the World Bank data, if truly societies had women participating at equal numbers um, economically, educationally, and more broadly, we would see a, uh, a growth of 160 trillion US dollars of um, GDP. And again, that is much more than uh, an annual GDP of any one country. So it's a very substantial number. So we also make the economic case for it. And then um, really contextualizing it in the space of uh, the health sector, I, a year to really look back at is um, what we have seen in the pandemic. So I'm going to cite three examples that I hope really drive home why it's critical um, to have women particularly uh, in leadership roles. So the very first one is around the fact that we have heard um, from uh, women directly during the pandemic, whether you were in a country like Germany or Nigeria, women were being told to uh, deliver their babies at home. And uh, a fact is that when WHO did a recent survey of what services uh, were disrupted, even though uh, family planning and sexually productive health and maternal neonatal child care considered part of essential services, 30% of the countries in that survey reported a disruption in those services. And we are very confident uh, women would never forget that uh, pregnancy doesn't stop during pandemics. And if they were part of the decision-making bodies in COVID-19, they would have prioritized that, especially the women health workers that are midwives um, who have now um, have been task shift to just focus on the COVID response. Many have been told um, to drop any of the services that they were providing around maternal and neonatal care, and that is resulting in women's lives being lost. Um, so that's one example that's uh, from the pandemic. The second one I've already talked a little bit about um, earlier, and this is around the protective personal equipment piece part of it. Um, we know that uh, PPE is designed um, for male bodies in the health system, and it's not the only sector. Um, we know that there's been broader efforts to reform PPE um, in other sectors as well, but very stark was during the COVID-19 seeing ill-fit um, bodysuits, um, bodysuits that uh, were also designed in a way that they could not uh, accommodate for women's bodily functions. Women, again, menstruate. Um, the menstruation does not stop during a pandemic. And uh, we you know, saw the effect of having very long shifts and working in uh, undignified conditions in uh, particularly Wuhan uh, in the where the outbreak first happened, um, women health workers were 90% of the response, again, did not have appropriate um, PPE. And the UN agency called UNFPA actually sent um, dignity kits um, that support women's uh, menstruation needs uh, to Wuhan so that those women would be at least working in somewhat of decent work conditions. But again and again, um, you know, we've seen this play out in different ways. And we make the case that if women were part of the COVID-19 decision-making bodies, they would immediately respond to that. And then the third example I'd like to highlight, one which um, we have all um, been somewhat affected by or heard about, is that uh, we know that women in general um, have been facing uh, increased amount of uh, gender-based violence during the pandemic and uh, 
the lockdown policies in many countries just happened overnight without factoring in that many, uh, for many children and women, it would mean that they would be in unsafe um, environments. And current estimates on the countries that have, again, reported on this data have shown an increase of at least 30% more um, gender-based violence uh, occurring. And if women were in decision-making bodies, they would, of course, um, want to mitigate a lot of that exposure and say that, you know, yes, we do need to have policies that uh, result in physical isolation, but uh, really looking at how can we make sure that women and children aren't forced to be in households where they're facing violence. And we do know that, you know, again, there's been increased amount of deaths as a result of that too. And so here are three examples that I hope really drive home the fact that if women were in decision-making roles, they would clearly be recognizing these issues. And uh, one of the studies that is considered controversial because it's uh, limited by the fact that we do not have a critical mass of women leading uh, governments or head of states, but a study that came out uh, last July looked at the response of women who head governments or in very senior leadership roles as head of states and in their review of looking at the suppression of spread of COVID-19, at least up to that point in time, found that women were outperforming men um, by six times at least. And again, I acknowledge that that you know, studies like this are very limited, and we have to also take a look at, you know, what um, factors uh, are driving um, the fact that these countries actually are led by women, and uh, what does it say about, you know, these countries itself. And so acknowledging all of that, um, I still want to put it out there that women do have uh, a different approach, um, and not all women will be the same, of course, but um, work that has looked at how women have approached COVID-19 has shown that they're more likely um, um, uh, to look at social protections. They're less likely to use uh, war analogies um, to divide uh, society. They're into building public trust, um, into using evidence, and really having an empathetic approach um, to, the, to the pandemic. And this is, um, again, a variety of groups have looked into this and uh, made the case for that. Brilliant. Um, I was going to bring up the the female leaders in, in COVID as well, so I'm glad you have. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about your work with the WHO. So on International Women's Day 2021, the World Health Organization signed a memorandum of understanding with your, your movement, your group, Women in Global Health, agreeing to tackle some of these issues that you've talked about. You know, your organization is, is five years old. It's very young. This seems like a huge deal. And, you know, how did it come about? And, and what is it in practical terms, what does it mean? Yeah, so you know, working with uh, the World Health Organization is truly a privilege. Uh, and we see ourselves really collaborating with the World Health Organization because of the vast um, influence the WHO has and the immense respect WHO has and really the norm setting and technical role that the agency um, directs in guiding health and global health is um, so important. And one area that we felt that WHO could be doing much more on over the years has been in the area of gender and gender equality and also um, advocating for women's leadership. And we've been very fortunate to have a, uh, a deep relationship with the WHO in already convening a hub which is called the Gender Equity Hub that focuses on the health workforce uh, issues 
issues since 2017. And so our relationship has really come um, uh, with WHO has evolved over the last few years as that hub has been focused on driving gender transformative policy action uh, through providing uh, technical documents, uh, reports, and uh, policy papers. We released in 2019 uh, one of the most cited WHO reports on health workforce called Delivered by Women Led by Men, a gender equity analysis of the health workforce. And um, that was a sort of the foundational work that we did with them and is being used by governments around the world and um, all sorts of um, actors in the space to really set the agenda in driving gender equality in the health workforce. And so um, the memorandum of understanding comes uniquely at a time where WHO has been looking to deepen its work on gender equality. We know that the Director General, Dr. Tedros, has been um, a very public about his um, vision to have an organization that is gender equal and also uh, more equitable with geographical diversity. When he became um, the Director General, he made a public commitment um, to women in global health to have gender parity in a senior leadership team. And the first um, team that he uh, appointed had 67 percent uh, women and geographically very diverse. And we were thrilled to see that, but we know that the organization clearly needs to do more than gender parity and needs to make sure that women's leadership is in equal numbers in all aspects of the organization. So this memorandum of understanding bridges together our work on health workforce, on universal health coverage, and also contributing to how the organization approaches gender equality altogether. And so we are committing to work with them, um, kicking off with a one-year agreement, um, but Clearly, we know that this work will continue beyond that since gender equality does take more time and it is a privilege for us, uh, but we really are bringing something um, very different to WHO in our approach. We are a movement and, um, and that also makes this uh, engagement really exciting uh, for WHO, the fact that we have chapters and we are, sort of are bringing a very movement style approach um, to this work and using methods that the International Labor Organization um, uh, talks about as key aspects of driving change, which is collective action. Absolutely. No, that's it's, it's great. It's great to see. Um, are there any other you know exciting projects that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, Elizabeth, um, thanks for asking that question. And uh, we have a really exciting um, a collaboration as a result of our memorandum of understanding with WHO and the fact that we've been working so closely with um, governments on these issues is we launched in January at the WHO Executive Board meeting uh, together with the government of France, our gender equal health and care workforce initiative, where we really focus on driving gender transformative action on many of these issues that I've talked about, uh, focusing on enabling women to lead. Um, the second, really addressing the issues of pay in the health sector. Uh, the health sector is one of um, the widest gender pay gaps. Um, and it is also a sector, as I've mentioned, where women subsidize um, the care that they are providing, um, half of their contributions being in the unpaid form. The third um, aspect of this initiative is about protecting women. And this is um, also looking at issues of violence and harassment. Um, the health sector has some of the highest rates of violence and harassment and 
currently governments around the world from the International Labor Organization, the ILO, have been asked to ratify a convention called um, Convention 190, um, ending all forms of discrimination, violence, and harassment in all workplaces, informal and informal. And so this initiative is trying to garner the support through the health community um, to really ratify that convention and also look at protecting women in workplaces. And the fourth is around decent and safe work conditions. Um, again, these are issues I've already talked about, but this initiative is embedded in the Generation Equality Forums, and it's the 20... A six year anniversary of the Beijing Plus, um, 25, um, 1995 declaration and Two countries, uh, Mexico and France, are hosting the platforms for action. And in June is when France will host the Generation Equality Forum. Um, and we will be uh, announcing the commitments we've been able to garner for this initiative. And so this is one um, initiative that we do have an ask for those that are tuning in um, to really ask their governments to join the initiative. Um, the initiative will go uh, beyond this year and really um, um, the aim is to align it with the SDGs um, and make sure that we achieve the SDGs on gender and health workforce together. Um, we are asking um, governments to make pledges, but also large international NGOs, um, intergovernmental organizations. Um, we also um, really hope that these conversations shape and influence the G7 um, and the G20 and UNGA. And with the UK hosting the G7 as the next big meeting that's um, upcoming in June, we really do hope to see that gender and uh, gender in the healthcare workforce is acknowledged as a key priority uh, to uh, building back better. You've been listening to Rupa Dan, internist and executive director of Women in Global Health. You can find more of these interviews on the BMJ podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all major podcast platforms. Subscribe to keep up to date with the big issues in medicine and the people who are tackling them. We'll be back next week with another talk evidence and some well-being coming soon. I'm Elizabeth Mahays, reporter for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.